we have begun our series in the book of Luke, and this is the third message. So Luke chapter 1 again, the material here in the first couple of chapters of Luke are unique to the book of Luke. They're not found in any of the other Gospels. And chapter 1 here is the long one of the longest chapters in the uh, New Testament. It's 80 verses long. And the second chapter is a close second here with, number, with 52 verses. So we're still in the first chapter here this morning. Last week, we noted a literary device here that, that Luke used, which is known as the pattern of alternation, and in which the author shifts back and forth between two subjects or more, and, and in the development of a, of a main central theme. And you see that here in the book of Luke, how he jumps back and forth between John the Baptist and Jesus in order then to focus attention successively on each person and then to show the connection between the two, the, the convergence here. This pattern of alternation then directs us to closely compare the information that Luke gives in each section of the alternation. The first of these is the comparison of two visits by the angel Gabriel to the father of John and then to the mother of Jesus. Last week we looked at that visitation to the father of John. There is Zacharias, the priest. A little background information here. The priesthood was divided into 24 groups. These 24 groups served in the temple for one week, twice a year. During major festivals and, and uh, feasts, all the priests would attend and share the temple duties. But then during regular rotations here, uh, the priests would come from each order. The order of Zechariah is called Abia. He was of the course of Abia. And then the priests of Abia, the course of Abia, would gather and then cast lots when they got to there to determine which duties and or areas what they would serve. We read here that Zechariah's lot fell to his attention at, at the altar of incense. Uh, at the altar of incense, uh, twice a day, in the, once in the morning, and then once again in the evening, this uh, incense would be offered. After the offering of the incense, the priest would go out to the people and bless them. While the ceremony inside was being carried on, the people would gather outside and pray. When we read these passages of Scripture, we need to concentrate on details that would really give us some real inspiration and light in how they are developed. Is it an accident? Just an incidental situation here that Zechariah should uh, 
be serving at the altar of incense. And what does this altar of incense speak about? And I touched upon that last week there from the, from the book of the Revelation. That uh, this, this was focusing upon prayer. So the angel appears to him and to announce that his prayers were heard. Is that a coincidence? And when he appears, he appears over beside the altar of incense and it startled Zechariah. And he tells him, don't be afraid. God sent me here to give you a message. Your prayers have been heard. Which tells us that this man has prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed over his life, his, his married life, that his wife would conceive and bear a child. These are godly people who are walking according to the directives of the old covenant. They were innocent people. But they had no child which was regarded in the culture as a judgment from God. Now they're old. And here God comes to them in their advanced years and says, your prayers are answered. You know, that's encouraging to us. Don't quit praying. You don't think God's listening and he, don't, he will not answer your prayers? Let me tell you something. Don't stop praying. Because God was ready here to fulfill His plan. A special function in the kingdom of God. This son of Zechariah and Elizabeth would be an Elijah-like figure promised by the prophet Malachi as the Old Testament was closed. We read there in Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. It means until and including John. And, he, and then Jesus said, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Malachi said, Elijah would come and prepare the way of the Lord. We know, we know that this is a response to that uh, prophecy of Malachi because the angel himself cited that very passage. Now, that time had come. From the close of the Old Testament in, with Malachi until this angel appears on the side of the altar. God has not spoken. He has not sent a prophet. He has not encouraged them in any way for 400 years. That's a long time. And now God's ready to speak again. And this son of Zechariah is going to be a prophet. The last Old Testament prophet the bridge between the Old Covenant and the New. And so you've got this Old Testament figure and now there's going to be a New Covenant figure 
that's going to show upon the scene, and these two are going to converge there in the third chapter, and we'll I'll touch upon that in a second. But Luke here then shifts to the second errand of the angel Gabriel. Six months. Now notice the timing. In both these situations there, we have a time given in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there with Zechariah. But then you, when you come over to, to uh, uh, verse number 26, it says, in the sixth month. A sixth month of what? Well, you read a little further down there and you find that uh, Elizabeth was, had conceived John the Baptist and that uh, she was six months along in her pregnancy when the angel Gabriel now comes to, to Mary. Six months after the conception. The pat- so here's the pattern of, of, of alternation. First the announcement to Zacharias. And now, beginning in verse 26, we have the uh, announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary concerning the birth of Jesus Christ. So this is shifting back and forth. The alternation then, if you'll notice, jumps back at verse 57 to the birth of John the Baptist. Then it jumps and it jumps back to Jesus in chapter 2, verse 1, and it talks about his early uh, experiences here and his boyhood, which only Luke develops. Only Luke develops. Then we have the we have the alternation jumping back to chapter in chapter three to John the Baptist again and his stepping forward in his ministry. You'll notice chapter one close closes with verse eighty. It says, "And the child John the Baptist." grew and became strong uh, strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That occurs in chapter 3, verse 1. And here the alternation again. But here is the convergence because we have Jesus and John the Baptist coming together in the first verses of the third chapter. This final shift here. Uh, in the 15th year of Tiberius, when John began his ministry, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, fulfilling the, prophet, uh, the, uh, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, which is cited there, Isaiah 43-5. to In this introduction, I think there's two important truths that you need to see. The first one is that Luke quotes from Isaiah's prophecy, which ends... All flesh shall see the salvation of God. I pointed out in the introduction of this book that Luke's primary emphasis is to show that the gospel is not just for the Jew. It is for Gentiles. It is for all nations. Luke himself is a Gentile. You see that in a number of other places, even in Mary's Magnificat, and and then also in in chapter two, uh, verse twenty nine, there when Simeon took Jesus up into his arms, and he says, "Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, 
that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for, the, uh, uh, for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. It's for everybody. Now, these words show that Luke's purpose was to demonstrate this universal application of the new covenant in the era of proclamation. Second thing here is that following this announcement, John turns to warn the Jews of their imminent danger of judgment. In that third uh, chapter, verses 7 and 9, their beginning, uh, their being... He said, don't, don't uh, depend upon the fact that you are descendants of Abraham. That's not going to do you any good. Unless you repent and turn from your evil ways, the wrath of God is going to fall upon you. So this shift then brings about the convergence, as I said, of both John and Jesus as the former announces the promised Messiah to come. Now, let's examine these visits more closely. And the first here, we have the time of the visit and its connection to Daniel. See, here's an important truth. Luke announced here the first visit of Gabriel as being in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And as we pointed out last week, this identifies that time between the close of the Old Testament canon, and the 400 silent years until now the reign of the days of Herod. This, however, is not the first appearance of Gabriel. Where is Gabriel found? There are four instances in the scriptures that speak of Gabriel. Two in Daniel and two in Luke. The first appearance of Daniel is in Daniel chapter 8 when Daniel the prophet was given a vision of the coming Grecian Empire. This period of the domination of the Gentiles. And he's troubled about this and wondering about this. And here is a voice behind him there in Daniel 8 verse 16 that says, Gabriel... Make this man to understand the vision. That's God. And he says to Gabriel, the angel who stood with him, go tell Daniel what that vision he saw is all about. And again, in the ninth chapter there, we have Daniel praying a prayer of repentance. Now here again, read Daniel and see what the progression of things is and what God is doing here. He gives Daniel this vision of Gentile world domination. And in Daniel's mind, this is a problem. Israel was supposed to be the nation. The, the, the throne of David was supposed to be the throne to rule the world. And God promised that, they, that uh, the the one who sat upon the throne of David would reign over all the earth. But because of the disobedience and sin of the nation of Israel, God had now disciplined them and put them into captivity in Babylon. 
And Daniel is concerned about that. Particularly when God gave him a vision of things to come, and it includes world domination by the Gentiles. How is this all going to work out? So the Lord says, Gabriel, you go tell Daniel and make him understand the vision. What was the response? What was Daniel's response? He went to prayer. He fell on his knees before God and began to confess and repent of his own sins and the sins of the nation. As they were now in captivity in Babylon. And so we read, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, chapter 8, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. That's Daniel 9.21. Gabriel came to Daniel to give him insight and understanding. Verse 22. And after which he explained, Seventy weeks are decreed upon your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint the most holy place, which is Mount Zion. See, notice, he's explaining to him the end time. What's going to be at the end? And part of this prophecy is about the gospel age that was to be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. And it is not inappropriate here that God should use the same messenger to open this fulfillment to, to a priest faithfully serving God in the temple on Mount Zion, God's holy hill, and the concern of Daniel's prayer. For we read there in verse 20 of Daniel chapter 9, confessing his sin and the sin of his people, Israel, and presenting his plea before the Lord for God and for his holy hill. So now this second visit of Gabriel in our text is to the chosen virgin who would give birth to that Messiah, to the anointed one, spoken of in Daniel's uh, 70 weeks. The anointed one who would be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince would come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Daniel, you're concerned for the city, but I, I hate to tell you this, God is going to have it destroyed. And it was in 70 AD. So secondly here, take note then of the places where this visit occurred. And again, as we noted last week, Gabriel came to Zechariah as he served at the altar of incense, symbolizing pr the prayers of the saints. And I pointed out Revelation 8, 3, where the angel was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Our prayers are important. Our prayers are very important. God uses His people to carry out His kingdom purposes 
often through their prayers which they may or may not see answered in their own time. But are used nevertheless anyway. And notice in, in Revelation 8 it says, He's offering up much incense with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar. So again I say it's no coincidence then that the angel said to Zechariah, Your prayer has been heard. On the other hand, note, notice where Mary was. Zechariah in the holy temple on Mount Zion. The concern of Daniel. But now Mary, where is she? Now she's in a little town called Nazareth up in the corner of, Gent of, Gent of basically Gentile country. It was a wicked city of about 15,000 people. The town was filled with all kinds of corruption. Remember Nathaniel, whom Jesus was calling to himself there in John chapter 1? And when he was told about Jesus, his response was, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? There, John 1 46. He, he was not speaking contemptuously of its size, but rather of its character. Now here is an amazing thing. God prepared the mother of our Lord not in the Jewish center of religion and politics, but in a city overrun by Gentile pagans and full of evil. Isn't that amazing? And it should be noted that the estates of the two were very different. Zechariah was respected and honored priest serving in the temple. Mary, although from the lineage of David, as was her husband Joseph, was virtually unknown, except in Nazareth. She was neither rich nor famous, but rejoicing in the fact that the Lord had looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Unknown. Yeah, that should encourage you too. God uses people... Sometimes nobody else recognizes or thinks about. And he uses them in, in great and mighty ways as he does Mary. Indeed, Mary testified, His mercy is for those who fear Him. Now, pause a minute. His mercy is for those who fear Him. Does God expect you to fear Him? Paul clearly states from the Psalms, there is none who fears God. No, not even one. How does a man fear God? Only when God graciously grants him eyes to see and ears to hear. So she said, His mercy is for those who fear Him. Not for those who are set apart by talent and accomplishment, wealth, position, power, or any other advantage. So the question is, do you fear the Lord? The tragedy of our culture is that there is none who fears the Lord. There is none. Then thirdly, consider the response of the two to whom the announcements were made. Zechariah responded in disbelief. 
he did not consider the fact that God, with that with God, nothing is impossible. The angel had plainly declared that Elizabeth would have a son and that his name would be called John. The Lord named him. You know what John means? Yahweh is a gracious giver. Yahweh is a gracious giver. And in response to his unbelief, Gabriel rebuked him, in effect. Do you know who you are talking to? I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Since you do not believe me, in a sense, you have, in a, you have shut God's mouth. Therefore, yours will be shut until this word is fulfilled. But notice Mary's response on the other hand. Unlike Zechariah's words, whereby shall I know this? She took the fact for granted, but asked, how will this be? Something which is so contrary to the unbroken law of human birth. A virgin conceiving and bearing a child? This is not natural. How's, how's this going to work out? And the fact that this is not unbelief is confirmed by the response of Gabriel. Instead of reproof, her question is answered in mysterious detail. The Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of the highest would overshadow her and so that the child in her would be conceived as holy, the Son of God. Fourthly, notice here the response of the two women in this situation. We have Elizabeth who hid herself for five months after conception. Why did she do that? Privacy, just privacy. Her reasoning for doing so is really not uh, shame, as is evident in her response. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me and to take away my reproach among the people. There in verse chapter 1, verse 25. No, I think she hid herself just for privacy, not for shame. But following the example of Abraham, who was old and childless, God brought Zechariah and Elizabeth through the same path, the same trial. His childlessness then was regarded a judgment on sinful people. However, both the sons of Abraham and Zechariah were critical to the redemptive plan of God. And so we read there in Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Here again, he's named by God, as John was named by God. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. An God says, I'm going to have an everlasting covenant that's, that Isaac 
is going to be the center of. And Paul clearly explains this promise there in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Notice this. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not the physical descent, but they're believing. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Notice, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's the everlasting covenant. The old covenant was not an everlasting covenant. The, the covenant made with Abraham, however, is an everlasting covenant. For God said to Abraham, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The covenant, the old covenant was made with the children of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. And it came to an end when the new covenant was established. And the new covenant carries on the covenant that God made with Abraham and expands it. So we, the scripture then foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So here he is quoting from that, that very covenant made with Abraham. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's not your parentage. It's your relationship to Jesus Christ. It's your relationship to God by faith. So then John ended the Old Covenant being the forerunner of the true seed of Abraham. The true seed of Abraham, as Paul very clearly states there in Galatians 3.16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, Messiah. Now notice Mary then replies in submissive obedience. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Chapter 1, verse 38. Then we read, in those days Mary rose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea, or Judah, Judea, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. This Now we have a convergence. So we have this alternation, 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 now a convergence. These two are coming together, and it's interesting that Gabriel makes clear that somehow they're related. We don't know what that relationship is, but they are related. Mary, no doubt, then wished to avoid gossiping tongues of those who would note the fact that she was pregnant and yet unmarried. So she flees to the haven of Elizabeth. So now notice in the, the visitation of Gabriel to Mary. And on this note, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Oh, what a greeting. 
she's taken aback, dumbfounded, befuddled. Verse 28 there. The Greek word that's translated here, O favored one, or in the King James it's highly favored, is the word charitu, charitu, which means highly blessed or much graced. It's used only one other time in the Bible to describe the Lord's attitude toward believers. You see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. To the praise of the glorious, to his glorious grace, with which he has blessed, that's the word charitu, or favored us in the beloved. We are highly favored, not because of who we are, but because of who we are in Christ. Sadly here, and I need to emphasize this, the Latin Vulgate uh, has caused serious error, for it translates it full of grace. Now, and that's led to many errors regarding the mother of our Lord. Truly, she was blessed among women. There in verse 28, King James Version. In the external distinction, she was truly blessed among women, not above women. There's no scriptural authority, whatever, to suggest that Mary is to be worshipped or prayed to. She was only a woman and a sinner at that, like everyone else. Rather, listen to the words of the Lord. Nay, rather, blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. Then note his comforting word to Mary. Do not be afraid. That's a common heavenly word of assurance. I mean, how would you like to be visited by an angel and know that it was an angel visiting you? It would, it would kind of dis... You'd be a little bit disheveled too. Whoa, whoa, what's this? Don't be afraid. He said the same thing to Zechariah. And she then was given the reason not to fear. You have found favor with God. God's chosen you. Wow, verse 30. How was God to show this favor to Mary? We read then in verse 31 to 33, you, shall con you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Here again, God names the son. When God names the son, this is an important work of God. You shall call his name Jesus. And he, uh, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Ah, we're worried about this throne. I don't have to worry about it anymore. No more. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That was Daniel's concern. What's going to happen to your promises of a kingdom and the throne of David? Ah, Gabriel said, don't worry. It's all under control. 
Jesus is coming. And of His kingdom, there will be no end. Nobody is going to be carried away captive to Babylon anymore. No more will the city of Jerusalem be destroyed. Because Jesus Christ is the true Son of David and will sit on David's throne and will rule in His heavenly kingdom and His earthly kingdom and there will be no end to it. Can you imagine the thoughts that ran through Mary's mind as the angel spoke these words? Jesus! Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. He would fulfill the prophecy of Daniel. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. His favorite term for himself. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, the throne, see, and glory and a kingdom over which to rule. All peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Mary was to be the mother of the branch of Jesse, the root of David, of which Isaiah 11, there 1 to 3 says, There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Well, the problem with Israel, the tree is not bearing fruit. Cut it down. Ah, but here's a tree that's coming up from the stump of David that will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord no wonder Mary says the Lord favors those who fear him the angel then closed his announcement with to Mary with these words, for with God nothing shall be impossible. Oh boy. Verse 37. I like the way the old American standard version of 1901 reads. Verse 37 translates like this. For no word from God shall ever be void of power. Oh, no word of God shall ever be void of power. And to this Mary responded, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And then let me just close quickly with this happy convergence of these two visitations, which we see there in verses 39 to 45. Mary went to the hill country of Judea, to the home of Elizabeth. Related here somehow, but we don't know how exactly. It's called cousin here, or but uh, uh, they're not... Uh, actual cousins the angel said to Zechariah that John would be filled with the spirit from his mother's womb so on Mary's coming into the house the babe leaped in her womb for joy Isn't that, to me that's, a, that's fascinating and Elizabeth then is declared to be filled with the spirit these two fillings must be Understood under the old covenant, 
context. Not be confused with the permanent indwelling of the Spirit promised in the New Covenant. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But the promise, which the promise was fulfilled in, in at Pentecost, there Acts chapter 2. But here, the old covenant spirit of God is granting to Elizabeth understanding that Mary was carrying the one who would be Elizabeth's Lord. She blessed Mary. Blessed is she who believed. See, Mary believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Do you believe the Lord? Do you believe His Word? Do you believe what He says is going to come true and believe and be what... It, you know, sometimes we struggle. Say, when is He coming? Why is He not answering my prayer about this or that? See, there's a... And here's our problem. We need to... We need to... To divorce ourselves from the glory, this from this, or divorce this glorious story from our traditional Christmas emphasis. Here's a glorious story that commences God's plan to restore all things. The kingdom of God was coming in the person of Mary's son. The Christmas story wants to keep the babe in the, in the manger, wants to celebrate this little baby. Who never never is more than a little baby. Who's never the Lord. Who's never demanding obedience and submission and surrender to those who are observing it. It's just cute. And the angels coming and worshiping there at that uh, and announcing to the shepherds. Oh, that's all cute little Christmassy stuff. And then we can set that aside now and go to the main thing. What did I get from Santa? What did Santa bring me? Not what God is doing. Uh, we need to get rid of that. So the second question here is, do you fear God? Has God worked grace in your heart so that you fear Him more than you fear anything else? This is the test of a genuine believer. Real believers fear the Lord. And no matter what it comes on them or comes against them or what opposition they have, they fear God rather than men. Therefore, they endure to the end. Or are you like Zechariah, plagued with doubts? You should rather be like Mary who submitted to God with humble trust and commitment. And then we close with the words of Mary. It's magnificent. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Can this be said of you? Can this be said of you? Father, thank you for the word. I thank you for its truth. Wow. So much. And we, we just barely touched on it. It's so glorious. Oh, Lord, let us see our Savior as He really is. 
Let us see your grace as it really is. Let us see your mercy as it really is. Let us fear you, not with terror, but with trust, with obedience, with submission. To walk in this world as a light and testimony to the glory of Jesus Christ. For this is what it's all about. It's spreading the light of the gospel to the ends of the earth to give everybody the truth that God is saving a people for his name, for his glory, that, that they should be a part of that. We'll praise you and thank you for what you do. Now, in Jesus' name, amen.